0: Heavenly God, take my words and speak through them. Take our hearts and speak into them that we may grow ever closer to you. Amen. Now, I really quite like gardening, but it seems that I am not so very good with houseplants. In fact, amongst my family, I actually have quite a reputation for killing them and above my desk, in my study, I have a whole set of shelves, and on there is a fern that has been completely forgotten. I was hoping that I would be able to revive it, now I had noticed it, but I think it is well and truly deceased. It seems that plants need water to survive, who knew? as I was writing today's sermon, it occurred to me that perhaps I should leave that plant there as a reminder of today's warning from Jeremiah. Perhaps my fern is like that shrub in the desert living in parched places of the wilderness. It is not an example of life in its fullness in any way. I would much rather that my life was more similar to the tree in Jeremiah that sends its roots down to the water. And so we have a warning in Jeremiah. And turning to our gospel today, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus, a quite graphic warning indeed in keeping with Jeremiah. We see that image of the rich man in Hades who is so thirsty that he begs Abraham to send Lazarus to him just to touch his tongue with a drop of moisture. Now Luke places this story after a whole section in which he's talking about money and wealth and people's relationship with it. He's just told the story of a prodigal son the parable of the dishonest manager. And he has, in the paragraph just before, described the Pharisees as lovers of money. The warning about loving wealth more than people is very clear indeed. But when we get this reading from the Gospels today paired with the particular reading from Jeremiah, I think we can also read it a little bit more deeply. It's not just about the money. Luke doesn't ever really suggest that money is in itself bad but rather what it does to us and how it affects our relationships that is the problem. When looking around through commentaries on the rich man and Lazarus, views on his problem with money vary. Some suggest that in his richness he has servants to do his coming in and going out, providing for his every need. So much so that he's never even seen a poor person, let alone the individual Lazarus at his gate. His money has isolated and insulated him. Other commentators suggest that he has deliberately ignored him because he doesn't want to share any of his amassed wealth. He would rather keep it all to himself. But I'm not really sure that we can know either of those things for certain from what Luke tells us. And I think that perhaps we might like to imagine a third possibility, that he turns away from seeing suffering. Perhaps, just perhaps, he might be only too aware that there but for the grace of God goes he. When we read it in either of the first two lights, it's quite clear that the rich man is not someone to emulate at all. But since we tend to like to think of ourselves as quite nice, kind, and charitable people, it's really easy to say, he's nothing like me. It's a warning for other people, not for us. But when we wonder whether he might not be able to look at the suffering of Lazarus because of how it makes him feel. Does that not start to feel a little bit closer to home? How tempting is that reaction for us? There but for the grace of God go I, we say, when faced with someone begging for money or shelter or food, or simply having the audacity to make us uncomfortable through their illness or their grief. How much easier is it to turn away? How many of us have perhaps put off phoning a friend in need because we haven't got the words and it makes us feel awkward? We don't like suffering ourselves and we don't like to see it in others. And how often do we avoid it? And what lengths will we go to to do so? That, to me, sounds a lot like the perverse human heart described in Jeremiah. Perhaps we're aware we do it, or perhaps we just don't admit it to ourselves. We tell ourselves a half-truth to console ourselves, to make us feel better. Oh, I won't intrude, we tell ourselves. They don't need me to call. I'll only be in the way. But the reality is, it's so often easier to say nothing. But in verse 10 of Jeremiah, he writes, I, the Lord, test for mind and search for heart. When we're talking about motives for our actions and not admitting our faults to ourselves, the idea that God tests our minds and motives is quite a terrifying prospect because God sees what we hide even from ourselves. So back to Lazarus. Lazarus tells Abraham that his brothers don't know the danger that they're in, if only someone would warn them. But Abraham is very clear. It won't make any difference. Presumably, God can see into the brothers' hearts as well. They've already been sent the law and the prophets. They've just not listened. Is it too late for them? That doesn't really leave us with much hope at the end of the reading. But when we turn back to Jeremiah, who is commonly thought of as the prophet of calamity, doom and destruction, he writes this for his hearers. Yes, he says, Cursed are those whose hearts turn away from the Lord. They will be the dead plants come the drought. But blessed are those who put their trust in the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water. Its leaves will stay green and it will bear fruit even in the year of drought. A curse and a warning, a blessing and a potential promise. Jeremiah's warning here precedes that promise. And what a promise it turns out to be. This perverse heart that is tested and searched by God may yet become the heart of the new covenant by the time Jeremiah gets round to writing chapter 31. And in there, he writes this. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Lazarus and his brother's fault is that they haven't listened to the law Despite Moses and all that he did, when he brought the people up out of the land of Egypt at God's command, despite all the warnings since in the works of the prophets, they still do not have the law written in their hearts. They won't be taught, not by each other, and not even by Lazarus, if Abraham were to allow him to go back from the dead." So we might ask ourselves, what exactly is the law that needs writing upon their hearts? In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is asked by a lawyer what he must do to inherit eternal life. And in response to that question, Jesus asks him, well, what have you read written in the law? And the lawyer answers, much like we heard the words at the start of our service. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus tells him he's right. Do that, he says, and you will live. And then he goes on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. That well-known story that contrasts those who know the law and yet turn away and walk past. And a Samaritan, not a follower of the law, and yet he comes to the aid of a person in the road. I think that the rich man and Lazarus story in chapter 16 can perhaps be seen as a warning story to go with the parable of the good Samaritan. The rich man's fate is indeed the opposite of the eternal life that the lawyer wanted to inherit. But then, like those people who walked on past on the other side in the Good Samaritan, no one really likes to look at suffering, do they? Dire warnings and threats don't always make us change our ways. We know that only too well. So I wonder if we might turn around this curse into a promise. Those who trust the Lord who have the law written in their hearts, who love God, neighbor, and self in balance, shall be like a tree planted by water sending out its roots by the stream. They shall not fear when the heat comes and their leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought, they will not be anxious, they will not cease to bear fruit. Perhaps it's our choice depending on our personality, stick or carrot. God's warning or God's hope for us, God's promise. But either way, however, we like to discipline and set our sights on things. The heart of the matter is the same. The difference is that God may test our hearts and find them lacking. But unlike the rich man who turned away from Lazarus and those who walked on by on the other side of a road, God will never, ever turn away from us. Throughout all the years of his history of his people Israel, no matter how much they went astray, no matter how much God despaired when watching them, he kept on sending prophets. He kept on warning them to turn back until the time came that God came to be with them himself to stand and look us in the eye, so to speak, so that we were unable to think that he had turned away from us. To teach us to repent, which is to literally turn around, to turn back to God, rather than continue to turn away. And it is in that turning back, however often we have to do it, And most of us have to do it over and over and over again. It is in doing that that we send down our own roots deeper and deeper to that stream of living water so that we shall not fear when the heat comes, so that our leaves can stay green and we will continue to bear fruit, turning away from neither God nor neighbor nor even from the truth of our own reflection. Amen. Amen.